You are listening to the Conversations in Clean Energy podcast, brought to you by nonprofit Sustainable Westchester, a consortium of Westchester County, New York member municipalities, developing and implementing energy solutions that are socially, fiscally, and environmentally sound. Host Radina Volova, the Regulatory Vice President at the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, and guests will explore a range of topics in the clean energy sector from policy and legislation to current marketplace solutions and the innovation driving the next generation of technologies, accelerating the transition to clean energy. Remember, the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of Sustainable Westchester or the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. Today's episode is sponsored by Water Furnace, a leading provider of clean heating and cooling technologies. Water Furnace uses the renewable solar energy stored in your backyard to provide savings up to 70% on heating, air conditioning, and hot water. You can learn more about Water Furnace at waterfurnace.com. The show starts now. Welcome to today's episode, Building Resiliency in LMI Communities Through Commercial Clean Heating and Cooling Technologies. This episode is produced in collaboration with the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA, and we'll take a look at a cutting-edge development project that uses clean heating and cooling technology and represents a successful model for building resilience in low-to-moderate-income communities. My guests include... Spencer Orkis, Managing Director of Affordable Housing with L&M Development Partners, Zach Fink, Principal with ZBF Geothermal, and Jennifer Leone, Chief Sustainability Officer with the New York City Department of Housing, Preservation, and Development. Together, we'll explore the many facets of feasibility, siting, planning, financing, and development involved in the Beach Green Dunes 2 development project. The project is heated and cooled with geothermal technology and services affordable housing in the Rockaways, a beachfront community just outside of NYC that went underwater during Superstorm Sandy. What was your role in the development of the project and what is the role of HPD generally in the development of projects like the one in Fort Rockaway? So I was not involved in this project. It predates me entirely. Um, But what I can tell you is how I would normally be engaged in a project like this. Um, It depends for us when a project, um, where in the development process the project comes in. If this were um, on city land, we would issue an RFP for projects, a request for proposals. um, And we as an agency would set and lay the groundwork for the type of project we'd want to see, right? So say it was a new site in the Rockaways, we would think about, you know, what the community needs. We would kind of go through that process internally. We would set um, whatever the kind of green guidelines are. And for us at HPD, that's really not just about energy efficiency. It's about resiliency, equity, and so on. So we would we would, you know, we would look at a project and say, what are the risks? What are the opportunities? And what do we want to see here? And that's generated through a pretty rigorous community engagement process where we would talk to the surrounding residents. And obviously Spencer and his team has worked with HPD enough to, you know, where this is a 
that is the process that is what is making what makes good architecture in these communities um if it were a project that doesn't come in through an rfp where it's a private site um say lnm would come to us and say we've got a project on this particular site and this is what we propose to do um it's a little bit different in that we have guidelines that um you know establish general recommendations and requirements for our projects but the developer will come in um with something that's sort of more self-generated in terms of design and then we would we would take a hard look and say is this design appropriate you know there are certain things that a develop a development team can do as of right of course but do we think that this is um where money is best spent and then when it gets down to the details of say energy efficient systems which is sort of my domain um if a you know if a team is proposing something that's fairly novel right and in the past say 10 years that's been passive house it's been vrf systems in this case geothermal then we would have the discussions with the development team um try and see if there is a track record for whatever that is and hope hopefully we know enough about it to say yes we think this is a good idea we support it or we need more information on cost benefit that's that's really important to us if if um if a project is if we don't have really good data to support say something that has higher first costs you know then that's that's a, a challenge for us for us because the more subsidy we have to put into a project and subsidy is the piece not covered by other incentives right that subsidy that comes out of our housing dollars right so we really have to do the math and assess these systems. Um, and when we work with the teams that are really trying to do good work and test out the new systems, and I've been giving this a lot of thought, you know, particularly to try and explain this, but we, we really want to see that the developers have skin in the game, right? Do they really believe in the systems that they are proposing? Um, and in that case, what that means is, hey, if you're very convinced about this new technology and you're convinced that it will save energy over time, then it will reduce your maintenance and operations costs. We want to see that, you know, then we're going to, we're going to figure out a way to underwrite those energy savings as aggressively as is reasonable and use that so that the project can take on more debt to cover it and reduce city dollars. Um, so we want to support these systems but again we have to have some evidence that they are you know that they work that they make sense they'll be installed correctly and that it's a good deal for everybody and ultimately that it's a good system for the tenants as well right it has to make sense we want our developers to be making good buildings they can ma maintain for the long term um but also that will benefit every resident um who lives there as a follow-up question for Spencer and Zach, and maybe for you as well, Jen, in terms of getting feedback from the community from a developer's perspective, how, how do you handle that? HPD has its own process for community feedback. Do you have one as well on your end before you reach out to HPD? Or are you part of the process with HPD? We generally work with HPD through that. I mean, we, we 
try to keep our ear to the ground in uh, in the neighborhoods that we're developing and develop relationships with different community organizations. You know, I think it's it's particularly tough uh, these days in that, uh, you know, really nobody wants, um, everyone wants to help solve the housing problem, but nobody wants that housing going up next to them. Um, you know, I think investment, and a lot of it's, you know, I think, some of it's just straight nimbyism, but some of it's straight concern about schools and transportation and the, you know, very decades of lack of infrastructure investment. So, you know, it, it becomes a delicate line to walk. But, uh, you know, we've always found HPD to be a great partner in, in, in those uh, efforts. And we uh, often um, are going in front of community boards uh, and elected officials together to... Uh, explain projects, listen to community concerns, and try to address those concerns. There's also something to be said for the power of good design. And, you know, with the entities that we work with, LNM among them, bringing good design to the communities where they work is really important. Um, and that's not just energy efficient design, but it's, it's good buildings that fit into communities. And that also helps, I think, with the community side of things. Absolutely. Yes, I think that's a really important point. Thank you. Before we move on to the next question, Zach, did you have anything to add there? I mean, the only thing that I'll add is that for geothermal Pacific systems, you're getting rid of whether it's P-tax generating noise and dripping water out or, you know, condensers on the roof, you are getting rid of some of the environmental noise. So you can have quieter environments, um, not just for the tenants of the people, but for the surrounding areas. Um, and I think that's a benefit as well that if you talk about resiliency and, you know, how this building is going to last and be perceived, um, they're not going to really know what's there. You know, there might be some additional pedestrian or car traffic, but you're not going to really hear the mechanical plants. And to that end, it looks better as well without all the equipment hanging out. And, uh, boiler flues. As well, you know, we depending on the relative building height of one building next to the other, you know, getting rid of even though the new boilers are, are much higher level of efficiency, just the the sight of that boiler flue and the the thought of what it's emitting is uh, not very popular. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these innovative technologies are, and specifically in regards to geothermal energy? Why did you choose to go with the geothermal heat pump for this development? We started this building as our first passive house um, project. Uh, and we had traditionally built uh, almost all of our affordable rental buildings using hydronic PTEX. Um, and that's not an option uh, under, the passive, under either of the passive house programs. So we started exploring our other options. Um, the main two, really the main uh, HVAC system that is, is utilized under Passive House is, uh, is VRF. We have used it and are using it in, um, in certain projects. We have a few different concerns associated with VRF. One is uh, the long refrigerant runs uh, throughout the buildings. You know, I think when you have it in a home and you're just running from inside to outside, and running the, the lines through 
an attic or a basement, that's one thing. But when you're when you're trying to run lines through a 120 unit building hidden in hidden inside walls, one of the things that can happen with these lines is as the equipment vibrates over time, the soldered connections can actually come a little bit loose and that gas can come out and it's a uh, it's a greenhouse gas that's much stronger than CO2 and uh, we're not quite sure how toxic it is or isn't and you know if someone happens to hang a picture on a wall and puts a nail through that line behind the wall we'll never know where the leak occurred and how it occurred you know, we're also, we we're looking at a project by, by the ocean. We were concerned about having these condenser, air-cooled condensers up on the roof and what the marine involved environment would do to those condensers over time. And it's not to say that VRF doesn't have its place and its time. We are doing another passive house project in, in Harlem where we are using VRF and we have designed it so that the all of the refrigerant runs are going up a, a specific set of shafts that are accessible and, and shielded from tenant walls. Um, but uh, the once we learned more about um, geothermal um, and the fact that its energy performance would exceed VRF um, was one of our was one of the more in, was a, a strong selling point. And then another strong selling point is that it's a, a basically a water source heat pump that um, our technicians and our building staff are already very familiar with. I mean, people have been using water source heat pumps for a very long time. Um, VRF systems are, are fairly complicated. You know, when something goes wrong, it's, it's, you're basically replacing a board. And, you know, maybe that board is has to be shipped and takes five days to get there um whereas uh, the water source heat pumps are a little more uh, a little more straightforward um and uh you know it took a little while for zach to educate us on the different types of systems of open loop versus closed loop um and we're ultimately sold on the closed loop system and uh the closed loop system is just really, really simple. I mean, it's a little bit brute force in terms of putting these borings into the ground and connecting to them to a manifold, but you're basically running a pump. Um, and uh, so all has been going well, and I, I'll, I'll let you know, Zach can expand a little bit more on the details of that. Zach, before you jump into the details on the project, could you answer two basic questions for the listeners. Can you please describe briefly what geothermal energy is and what VRF is as well? Of course. So I'll start with uh, VRF. And so, so VRF is an air-cooled um, system. Um, it's called variable flow, uh, refrigerant flow, um, which is with the VRF. And basically there's a condenser on the roof and it can service a number of apartments. The systems are versatile in the sense that you're running two refrigerant lines, you know, um, eight, you know, a quarter inch and a three eighths line. So they're small and they're flexible and you can have, you know, as many heads as you want throughout the entire system. Um, the, you know, drawback to them is that there are components that are exposed to the elements. So in the site that we did with L&M, you're right on the water, on the salt water. 
on the ocean. So what is the longevity of that? Those going to be on the roof. Um, you know, are the coils going to start falling apart? Um, and if they do leak, where are you leaking that refrigerant? Are you leaking it into tenants' apartments? Are you leaking it into the roof? Uh, not that long ago, the type of refrigerant that the industry used needed to change um, from what was called R22 to R410A because of the greenhouse gas um, emissions associated with the older R22 refrigerant. Um, so that's always a concern. But, you know, VRF is evolving every day. There are now cold climate heat pumps out that will do full heating capacity out to five degrees. Um, and there are things that you can do in VRF such as heat recovery, where if there's a commercial space that's running and cooling, say in December, you can use the heat that you're capturing from that to heat the tenant apartments or domestic hot water or other things. Then you have geothermal, which we're drilling into the ground. Um, some, you know, on commercial sites, it tends to be somewhere in the four to 500 foot range because that's where it makes the most sense for economics and you need the least amount of land area. So the least amount of disruption to the construction and the project team. And in a closed loop system, we're putting polyethylene pipe in the ground that we're circulating our food safe antifreeze through the ground. Um, and that's going through the building. And then you have each of these geothermal heat pumps, which is just an extended range water source heat pump. And basically each unit has a little compressor that can provide heating or cooling. Each tenant can be on either heating or cooling. So the building doesn't need to be in the same mode. Um, and everyone has their own little independent zone of comfort. Um, the nice thing, as Spencer talked about, is that you have, if you have 125 units, you, apartments, you have 125 little air conditioners or heat pumps throughout it. And that gives you redundancy in the system design. The other thing I'll say is when L&M first started talking to me, um, they came to me with this crazy idea of saltwater wells that someone had proposed, which was great because it made the closed loop argument that much easier um, because just like the salt water will eat the condensing units on the roof, it will eat those pumps over time. So from a resiliency standpoint, um, I think every five years we'd become very good friends because in five years they would be putting a closed loop system in. But luckily we were able to prevent that from happening. And with a closed loop system, the piping in the ground has a 50-year warranty, 200-year life expectancy. And from an industry standpoint, if you ever drive past the side of the road and you see Con Ed or National Grid putting the big orange gas piping in the ground, um, that gas piping is the same piping that we're using. So there's trained technicians that could, from a marketplace development, you know, go from gas pipeline work to geothermal pipeline work. Is there anything else you wanted to add about your thinking on why geothermal for this project in particular? So Far Rockaway is probably one of the best areas that we'll find for geothermal. The ground is highly conductive. Um, as you drill down, you're in a saturated sand gravel. So if we look at the marketplace that we're working in, it's low density. So I'm not closing a street to be able to drill in Manhattan. Um, I'm not drilling, you know, 1,500 feet down and dealing with, you know, Department of Mineral Resources mining permits and, you know, onerous requirements. Um, it's kind of like sticking, you know, a knife in warm butter. It, the ground just kind of cuts, which brings down the cost of the drilling, you know, 50 to 60% compared to other sites in the city. Um, and then you have the benefit that because the ground is more conductive, you need 20 or 30% less loop. So the combination of those two makes it that much more cost effective of a project. And I would add, 
to that that having having that little bit of extra land really helps. I mean, we put all of for Beach Green, we put all of the geothermal in the parking lot. Um, whereas we have another project um, in Brooklyn where. Uh, because of the the gas moratorium, we needed to develop a building that was all electric, and we moved forward with geothermal. The sites were just not as big, and we're putting the putting the borings underneath the building. And in that situation, the main impact is just a, del- a timing delay. You know, we had to spend six to eight weeks uh, installing the borings before we could start construction on the building foundations. Then there's always just that risk out there that um, something that happens during construction would impact one of the existing wells and require some level of repair down the road. I'm very glad that you also addressed, Spencer, the fact that these projects can be done in a denser urban environment. I think that's a very, very important point. I think with that, passive house becomes more and more important. You really need to reduce the... And I, and I think passive house becomes important as well with just doing all electric buildings. You need to reduce the energy demand to be able to make geothermal work in a tighter footprint, you know, so that you can uh, get away with fewer wells. In many buildings in New York, heating is included in the rent. So tenants don't pay for it separately. It's part of their overall bill. And the question again is, does passive house change the heating load and does that have any impact on cost calculus for landlords and tenants? So from a load profile perspective, you'll change the buildings from cooling do- uh, from heating dominant to cooling dominant. If you think about it in the you know New York City, you know, metropolitan area, we're really in heating for about six to seven months out of the year, and we're in cooling for three to four. Um, so when you look at total aggregate heating in a building um, for the Long Island and New York City regions, it tends to be about twice that about cooling. When you go to passive house, uh, the number that we use is what we call the balancing point of the building, which is at what point does the building heat itself up enough that you no longer need not, you know, to introduce heat. Um, and a typical building that tends to be somewhere around 65 degrees outside, you'll generate about five degrees of heat and you don't necessarily need to run heating. In a passive housing building, that tends to go down into the low 50s, which means any time that it's you know, 55, 60 degrees outside, the tenants on especially the top floors might be overheating to the point that they're either going to open a window or they're going to end up running cooling, um, which will change the ground balance, which changes how we need to design the systems. I think there's two components. This metering um, under these advanced systems is 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 much more difficult than it used to be. You know, traditionally we would run hot water into the into the tenants' apartments. Landlord would pay for that, and uh, there would be a through the wall or in the wall air conditioner that the tenants would pay for. These VRF and uh, geothermal systems, it's much more difficult to split that out. Um, VRF uses uh, as a, some technology built into it to submeter. It's more difficult with um, with geothermal. The we figured out some ways to to do it. Um, uh, 
However, you know, I think when you combine, what we've also seen is when you combine geothermal and passive house, the actual cooling costs are so small that, you know, I think at a certain point it's gonna, gonna become negligible and it's not gonna be worth the effort of trying to bill a tenant for some of these costs. I think it, you know, we still just have to keep the incentive component of billing a tenant does make a difference. Um, and so we want to make sure that, you know, people aren't opening their windows and having their heat or their cooling on at the same time. You know, it is, but I think there are other ways to, to deal with the incentive side of, of things. Um, some people have gotten creative on that front. Ultimately, the hope is, you know, an HPD has started to work on this. Um, and Jen, I don't know if, if you have some info, but adjusting what are called the utility allowances as they pertain to different heating and cooling types is, is something that's being worked on and will hopefully uh, uh, catch up in some of these housing programs as we move forward. First of all, so that everybody's clear on what utility allowances are, um, in affordable housing, we're limited on the amount of rent that can be charged to any tenant. So no matter what their income level, 30% of their income level is what's allowed to cover rent and their estimated utility costs, right? And what that means is you have to kind of have a way of estimating what those utility costs might be so that you can reduce the rent and leave enough in tenants' pockets to pay for that. Um, traditionally in New York City buildings with owners paying for heating, those costs were really just, you know, lighting and incidental plug loads for the tenants and sometimes cooking and air conditioning more often than not because air conditioning is plugged into the wall. So that was kind of easy. We have utility allowances for that. That's been the standard for a long time. Um, but what we haven't had is a fair and Let's, let me take that word back, not fair. A reasonable um, utility allowance for heating um, so that there's not a really good way to play around with should the heating be allowed on a tenant's bill. There's also a misconception that owners have to pay for tenant heating, which is not actually the case. Um, so these utility allowances, there are a lot of regulations about how they're set in different programs. Um, and there's been a huge amount of talk for five years or more within the agencies. This is across the country. It's all the way up at the level of HUD. But to figure out how to make utility allowances that match up to today's building technologies, um, HVAC technologies, and so on, so that you can accurately budget for tenant use and also to kind of understand better if you want to start moving loads around from owner to tenant and so on. It's so complicated that I may not have actually responded to Spencer's concern, but part of the issue with VRF is that because the same system provides cooling and heating and traditionally one's paid by one party and one by the other, it muddies it up and makes it challenging. Before the conversation continues, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. As part of the global NEBA energy family, Water Furnace has been driving the adoption of geothermal and water source heat pump technology since 1983. 
Although it earned a reputation as a leader in geothermal, the company has worked in recent years to innovate new technologies, integrate key trends, and grow the core business to represent a portfolio of clean and sustainable solutions. Water Furnace products help transform the way we use energy, protect resources for future generations, and give people the freedom to focus on life. You can learn more at waterfurnace.com. Welcome back to the conversation. Zach, what would you say to developers who are trying to make the case for geothermal? And second question, do project economics differ for geothermal as compared to variant refrigerant flow systems? So similar to what Jen was saying, um, very rarely do we have a developer that comes to us and says, we're definitely doing geothermal, sign me up, get started tomorrow morning. Uh, If anyone knows one of those, have them call me. Uh, But they're very far and few in between. A lot of times the phone calls we get is, I saw something about geothermal. Um, I don't know if it will work or not. Um, Can I install it? And, you know, the first thing is we ask for the address. And, you know, we'll have just a frank conversation about the sites. Um, I remember that when I was talking to someone on Spencer's team at the very beginning, uh, they said to me, Zach, if this isn't a good site for geothermal, let us know and we can find another one. And, you you know, that kind of stuck with me. And not every site, you know, is going to be the best candidate for geothermal. Um, There are sites, uh, for example, St. Patrick's Cathedral a few years ago had geothermal installed. And when people say, Zach, it can't be installed, I point them to that site and I say, it probably can be installed. The question is, is it economical and what is the reasons for you doing it? Um, But if you have a design engineering challenge, we're up for the task. So, you know, we'll do a lot of desktop feasibility studies where we put together, you know, in 15, 20 minutes, just kind of a cost comparison based on previous projects of what we think, you know, big picture economics and big picture savings will be. And that gives, you know, the ability to start the conversations. If we're guessing at that point that it's going to be a 50 or 100 year return on investment, it might not be best for that project. If we're estimating that based on the system design, it's going to be a one or two year return on investment, it's probably something that's worth having, you know, more of a conversation around. And then we have a lot of different types of developers that we work with. Uh, We have developers that, you know, hold their buildings long term. And their investment criteria is if it pays for itself in, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years, they're on board for it. We have other developers that are looking to fund a deal and then sell it, um, whether before or after construction. And they want to have, you know, a day one return on investment. Um, And you might not be able to make it work on those projects. So really, depending on your developer's outlook, um, it is easier to have, you know, a developer that's building, you know, LMI housing to go with geothermal right now than someone that's building condos, for example, uh, because they actually do have a way for rate recovery at the end of the day. Um, and to recapture that upfront event, you know, incremental cost, um, you're not necessarily going to get more for selling an apartment with geothermal. You'll get more for the granite countertops. So, you, you know, those are all the things that we start talking to developers about. And then to answer the other part of the question for VRF, you know, it's similar questions. Um, you know, how was the building designed? For example, um, if someone comes to us and they're building, whether it's an existing building or new construction, they're proposing a boiler and cooling tower or chiller system, and you already have the water source heat pumps and you already have the water piping in the building. 
that's a very easy, you know, conversion to geothermal. You get rid of the um, boiler, you get rid of the cooling tower, and you put a loop field in underground. And I don't really need to touch the inside mechanicals. You do need to change from standard range to extended range heat pumps, but I don't need to make big changes. So what is the aesthetical impact of the building? You know, do I have spaces to run riser piping? In the building is always a question. Um, and, you know, do you have roof space available for VRF? Where do you put these condensers? Are you, you know, planning on a green roof that's community space? And then you put your condensers up there and that takes away from tenant amenity space. And there's all things that need to be looked at as part of the equation, whether it's geothermal, whether it's VRF, you know, whether it's a cooling tower on the roof. Um, they just all need to be looked at. Let's say you have had these initial discussions about the location and general project design. Spencer, this is a question for you. How do you access financing for geothermal systems in these kinds of projects? I do think it would be interesting to hear how private lending works with incentives, but if you could really prioritize sharing what incentives were available for this project specifically, that would be especially helpful. There are a few incentives out there. They're not, they're not huge. They're generally offered through the utility companies for uh, installing geothermal. In terms of financing um, the systems, we, we financed them with the the remainder of the with, the with the balance of the project. So, you know, again, the two primary funding sources, or there's three primary funding sources, tax exempt bonds, uh, housing tax credits, and uh, subsidy loans from agencies like HPD. We try to cover the, the increased cost with just the tax credits and the tax exempt bonds and not, you know, as, as Jen spoke about, not require additional subsidy to to make these decisions. In addition to the housing tax credits, there are some, uh, they're very limited, but there are um, uh, some energy tax credits that you can get uh, on the geothermal system. And the way these tax credits operate, uh, because it's affordable housing, we don't have very high uh, revenue. It's a very low uh, uh, net operating income, very low cash flow. So it's better for us to sell the credits than to try and use them ourselves. So we we will send sell them to uh, uh, often large commercial banks, but sometimes other investors that are interested in purchasing the credits for a number of different reasons. And uh, then the the tax exempt bonds um, we're usually able to get a better a larger permanent loan. Um, because of the operational savings. We take a, a mixture of the larger perm loan, the tax credit equity, and the fact that we will see a somewhat higher cash flow over, over the first 15 years uh, as a result of the lower operational expenses. And uh, those, are, those are primarily the three main funding sources uh, for these systems. And do you, as a developer, do all of this weaving together of different financing options yourself, or do you have designated financing staff who address these issues or consultants? 
or HPD? No, we, we do it all ourselves in-house and uh, we, uh, we put together the budgets. We research a lot of the funding options. Um, you know, we, Zach has been helpful in bringing a lot of the rebate opportunities to our attention um, that, that come from the utility side. Um, but, uh, you know, these are, these are programs that are part of the, or mainstays of the affordable housing financing, uh, uh, program, uh, that's been in place since the eighties. Jen, a question for you. I think you've already mostly addressed this. I think you very eloquently spoken to the issue of how HPD makes its investment decisions or project support decisions, but, um, I do still think it's important to ask in case there's anything to add. So um, I think that um, this project came together very fortuitously and that, let me rephrase that, it's not fortuitous, it's just a great location, well done, and a lot of the elements that you might be looking for to make a project successful are there. What would you say to a developer who maybe isn't in an ideal location, who maybe faces some greater technical or financing challenges, but is interested in installing geothermal and is interested in HPD support? Let's see. So I don't hold the purse strings at HPD. Um, I think that there, in, in many cases, it's putting a little bit of the onus on the owner to make the argument, right? If it's an outrageous proposal, right? We want to do geothermal like in the Bronx and drill into 400 feet of bedrock. Obviously, we will say no. That's, you know, it's not viable. We would, we would really want to see what the payback is, what the subsidy impact is, and are there other arguments to be made, right? We are, like I said, it's important for HPD to address the health and wellness of our residents and so on, but to a point where we're not using up all the subsidy for all of our projects so that one person really can do something that's maybe a little bit of a boutique system, right? We would say you need to bring us some alternatives to compare this to. Um, we don't want to see something that has a really subpar environmental impact, but this might not be the project for geothermal, or maybe you can make some sacrifices elsewhere to make this thing pencil out better. Um, and again, right now, as you can imagine, budgets are even more constrained. So the argument for these systems has to be pretty compelling. And yes, it's environment, it's cost, it's, you know, maybe some other harder to quantify benefits and so on. We, at some point, there's a chance that um, all buildings, including affordable housing, will be subject to the same rigorous carbon constraints um, that, the, that the city's other buildings um, have to meet. And then it'll be a different economic argument where we can look and say, well, these will be avoided costs in the future and have to be part of the economics of a project. The flip side of that is it might be that there's a, a possibility in the near future that there are carbon trading options where a project can legitimately say, my exceeding these carbon targets in some way can be monetized 
um, and we can factor that into the economics as well. Um, same with health benefits. If we can figure out how these things can be monetized again, then maybe that also helps. But it's really about making a legitimate argument for why a system makes sense. And there's not a system that would be almost as good at a lower cost. Following up on what you just said, the question of resiliency has come up several times so far in our discussion, as has the question of cost-benefit analysis. How do you quantify resiliency benefits in a project? Ooh, that's a tough one. That, that is, that's been a challenge really across the boards for the city and for HPD um, because right? It's, it's hard to say that for sure the emergency will happen to my building. Um, I am not an expert on resiliency financing, um, but it's sort of the black swan event and how do we calculate that? I don't have a great answer to that, but it's, it's been a real challenge. I think the insurance companies are doing a good job for us at quantifying it you know, since Sandy, the, the, the level of detail that they ask about our buildings, um, um, you know, it's not, it's no longer, are you in or are you out or are you out of a floodplain? It's, they want to know specifically what type of floodplain they want to know the elevation of your ground floor to things. They want to know where each piece of equipment is. They want to, they, they will take the time to understand your building now. Um, before giving you pricing, and the, and the pricing differential is extraordinary, um, and uh, can really, uh, really impact the feasibility of, of a project. This is certainly something that I need to explore more and know more about. But it's it's fair to say, from HPD's perspective, that even if you don't have a quantitative number or a quantitative analysis for resilience, it is a qualitative factor that you take into account in evaluating a project, right? Absolutely. And more and more, um, in fact, in our new guidelines um, that are, you know, mandatory for new construction projects and our sub rehab projects, all projects now starting with the new Enterprise Green 2020 overlay will have to do a risk assessment that doesn't just um, ask, like Spencer said, is your project in the floodplain based on the current code, but is it which future floodplain might it be in, right? So that because not everybody looks for that necessarily, and we want it to be something that we take into consideration and our building owners do as well. Like in 2050, there's a very good likelihood that your building will be affected, right? The same thing goes for heat risk, um, precipitation risk, and so on. We want to know because where we have some leverage, and in some cases, it's not that hard for a building to elevate its mechanicals, right? If we were doing VRF anyway, that's half the battle. If we're doing geothermal, half the battle. It might be as simple as raising a building's ground floor. We've seen this. We've recommended it you know, six or eight inches just to get to a slightly safer point. And that's an easy value judgment to make. It's not always so clear, like in the case Spencer mentioned, where you have to raise a building's ground floor eight feet. 
and or you know not put any um, residential use or critical use or equipment anywhere within that zone. So we we take it into account for sure. Yeah, and I think there's there's a there's a number of competing regulatory elements there that not even necessarily regulatory, just market components that we have to contend with. Retailers, for example, just do not, they want to be at sidewalk elevation. They don't want to be two feet up. They don't want to be two feet down. They want you to be able to walk in off the sidewalk. ADA requirements mean that having a, going two feet up means that you're having a 24 foot plus ramp. Um, So those those elements create an incredible amount of tension um, uh, when you have a street level that's set and that street level is below the flood elevation um, what what you do to safely get the inside of your building at a at a reasonable grade a lot of people you know floodgates are sort of this knee jerk reaction that a lot of people have to I'm in the flood zone, I'll just get floodgates. Well, and they think that whenever the 50-year storm or the Sandy event comes by, they'll put up their floodgates. But if you're four feet below the flood elevation and you might have these large uh, floodgates stashed away, what happens, you know, you might see a flooding event on every full moon um, in in the Rockaways. And and that's not going to be a practical solution at the end of the day. You know, if you're telling your retailer you've got to close down once a month because the uh, the water's coming out of the street, so it, it's it's complicated to say the least. I hope it's okay to throw in something that is, you know, it's a little bit random but very pertinent to this. I've read somewhere that in Venice, uh, it's got to be Venice, right? They design buildings with a very high ground floor, with the idea that over time the floor of the ground floor can continue to rise to a point where the ceiling no longer makes sense, right? And Venice is a little different. The streets are made of water in some ways, but I always thought that was sort of a fascinating idea to let the buildings evolve over time in a, in a way. Anyway, I'm just putting it out there. Somebody one day will think about doing it, I guess. Yeah, I think that raises a lot of related questions. I, I wish we had another two hours to talk about urban planning and how we incorporate sustainability into planning from a bigger picture, not just for individual projects. This leads really nicely into our last question, which is, what was it like working in a community that had actually gone underwater? during Hurricane Sandy. Did that shape in any way a greater sense of urgency to create the project in a certain way? And did the fact that this is an environmental justice community and a frontline community shape your thinking on the project? Sure, so we um, we are also the owners of um, uh, Arburn View Apartments um, down the road and we were planning to close on purchasing that property um, and uh, Sandy hit on the day that we were planning to close and had to, had to delay that closing. We ultimately did uh, purchase the property and uh, made uh, extensive uh, renovations uh, to the project, to the property. 
So we, you know, we were very familiar with um, the impact that Sandy had on the residents and the community um, and uh, uh, knew going into this project that um, it needed to be designed in a resilient way. Um, you know, just from some of the smaller things of, you know, we, we put a, a, a door on the second floor um, uh, community room that has a stair that leads, leads down, but that can be used that if, if a rescue boat needs to um, come to the building, that people can walk outside on the second floor and get down the stairs and then ultimately be able to get onto a, to a boat. Um, but, uh, you know, there were things that we did want to do that we, you know, plan to do in the next phases of, of having a more uh, resilient power backup system um, for the building that, uh, um, you know, just was not financially feasible at the time. Um, and, uh, but uh, we think as we're able to prove out some of these other systems um, and be able to underwrite the projects a little more tight, uh, showing, uh, showing that these exp operating expenses prove out, um, we'll be able to bring uh, some of those things into the, into the project. Zach, how about you? What I'll say that was that when we designed the geothermal system, we designed all of the components that went on the ground floor, which was on the parking garage, uh, which is at grade, um, to be able to be fully submerged. So that went down from, you know, the polyethylene pipes that is not going anywhere to our ball valve choices, um, anything that was, you know, in the base flood elevation plus, you know, three or four feet was all designed in a way that, you know, a storm could come in and, you know, the pumps for this building are on the roof. And as soon as power was restored, there would be nothing, you know, in the flood zone that needed to get changed from this geothermal system that would get destroyed. Um, because unfortunately, you know, flooding events are going to become more and more prevalent over time. And Jen, how about you? I know that you didn't work on this project specifically, but how do you approach projects in communities that have already experienced the impacts of severe climate-related events? I think we would, or I would want to know specifically which climate-related events we're talking about, right? There's, there's flooding, there's heat, there's, you know, there's other issues like that. And making sure that the residents are safe, you know, most importantly, right? There's there's other financial considerations like Spencer pointed out, right, with, um, ten, you know, commercial tenants and so on, but it's really the safety of our residents. We always think about who are the tenants, right? Are they at extraordinary risk from certain things and making sure that that is addressed, right? Um, our elderly residents have different challenges, right, than families in some cases. Um, and certainly we look at what the measures are and they, are they appropriate to the risks, right? Like Passive House is a great resiliency strategy, right? For heat, you know, high heat events, um, loss of power events, just in terms of climate control and so on. Um, so that's what we really want to think about. And again, if, if it's it, areas, for instance, like those impacted by Sandy, we have pretty good evidence of what what the actual challenges were, right? 
Um, and now we're seeing a whole nother level of risk from coronavirus, right? Different risks. It's not flooding. It's something else entirely. So really trying to understand that and how we can best tailor the building's responses to those risks. And I think, I don't remember, it must, maybe it was Spencer who mentioned it before, but if at all possible, you know, we'd love to see how these buildings maybe can address risks of the, for the community beyond just the residents. I mean, it would be great to see how a communal or a community space in a building in a, you know, a flood zone might be able to be a place where other local residents could come and charge a phone or, you know, have an emergency cooling center or so on. Now, that's the kind of thing that takes a lot of forethought to think about, right? And I know as an agency, we are trying to promote that um, across projects where possible. And certainly if a, you know, if a developer came to us and said, we, we are trying to do X, Y, and Z, this would be one of those cases where maybe there's a little bit of a subsidy impact to this, but wow, there's like a really, you know, broad benefit to doing something like this. And what Jen had mentioned about, you know, climate change um, and heat um, being part of the resiliency and the environmental justice, um, you know, one of the cool things about the Beach Green Dunes project is that the summer access fee is only $10 a month for air conditioning. So, you know, residents don't need to be as hot. And then if you also think about COVID-19, um, passive houses have increased ventilation requirements. And that also has a MERV 13 filter requirement as well, which is 92% efficient against the dust, the dirt, the pollen, the allergen, the viruses that are in the air. So the units themselves are better equipped in a passive housing building to be able to handle a virus situation. And, and shelter in place situation too, right? I mean, this is where you want to be if you're quarantined is in a project like, you know, Beach Green 2. It's the safest place to be. Yes, again, thank you so much for bringing us back to the fact that there is a very direct link between clean and resilient energy and the tenant's lived experience in a building and the comfort, health, and safety that comes along with that. We were thrilled to have had such a dynamic conversation. While this podcast focuses on the technical and financial solutions for developers to implement clean energy technologies, we began by talking about climate change, what it means, how it affects resilience, energy decisions, and their environmental impact. I'd like to leave you with what we saw as notable insight. Climate change for me is an essential challenge that we as a society need to work towards. Um, I think it's going to be tough for us to totally reverse the, the impact we've had, but we've got we've to do everything we can uh, now and going forward to limit the impact. Zach, how about you? Yeah, so I mean, I think the climate change is really an opportunity. Um, it allows new businesses to develop, um, and it allows, you know, innovation to occur in a way that it wouldn't have occurred. Um, for, for example, um, if you told me that 10 years ago, natural gas infrastructure would be potentially banned and that a building couldn't potentially have a natural gas hookup, everyone would tell me that I was crazy. 
And now we're having conversations with developers and clients that are starting to consider natural gas a development risk. Um, to that end, um, we have in our single family housing, you know, work that we do, uh, more and more of our clients are starting to wire for electric car chargers. So you can see that if they're not ready to buy one now and not enough cars are out there and the infrastructure hasn't developed, they want to be ready. So it's very cool to see what's happening on both grid management side of, you know, if everyone adopts a heat pump, for example, the New York electric grid is going to shift from a summer peak to a winter peak, which is, you know, 12 years ago when someone asked at the time, um, the head of the public service commission, that question, they said, ah, we'll worry about it when it comes. And that's a real conversation going on right now. I think something that concerns me, and, and this has been more and more apparent um, because of, you know, where I work and who HPD serves is that obviously climate change presents great risks. I think it's, you know, we're a little past the point of turning back the clock ever, but the risk disproportionately affect some people more than others. And that is, it just magnifies all of the risks. And there's a concern, and I think we have to be super careful about this, that whatever opportunities arise to combat this are equitably distributed. We have to make sure that all of the work we're doing, all of the innovation can also include the people who are getting hit the hardest and can possibly contribute greatly to any kind of, you know, mitigation or response to climate change. Conversations in Clean Energy would like to thank today's guests for sharing their time, thoughts, and insights with us. Thanks as well to our sponsor, Water Furnace, for their support. And to learn more, visit waterfurnace.com. Please remember that the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of our sponsors, Sustainable Westchester, or the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. Thanks for listening. 